sometimes we feel like, oh, I have to hurry up and do something or fix it. Oh, yeah. And that doesn't usually work out. I think pausing and then looking around you at who you who are your people? What resources do you have? You are still here and you have gone through other things and you are going to get through this, but how are you going to do that? Life gets easier if we figure it out together. Welcome to The Lisa Show. My day didn't go as planned this morning. I woke up and I was getting ready for work and sort of fluttering about the house like I do. I think every parent knows what I'm talking about. You know, you're picking up random shoes and socks and putting dishes in the sink or whatever. And I found myself in my basement really quick to grab some paper towels that I needed earlier. And I went down there and it was flooded. My basement was flooded. Do you know that feeling when you're like, wait, no, but I don't have time for this Ugh, what is happening? And it it dawned on me right away, like not again. My basement has flooded now three times, all for different reasons, which is fun. Because you think you have the problem solved and then it happens again. And it's such an overwhelming problem, right? First, you're hit with the smell. Then you're hit with the, oh, how bad is this? Then you're hit with, where is the source? And I couldn't figure it out at first. And then finally, you just kind of think, oh, great. Do you know how long this is going to take to clean it up? Because once you've been through it once, you know this is a long process. So the first time that my basement was flooded, it was because of an act of God. Seriously, that's what we had to put on the insurance. We had an unusually hard rainfall, and the gutters on our city street hadn't been cleared, so they overflowed and came into our house and broke through the window. It sounds so crazy, but that's what happened. We have since then cut out the actual frame um, of our house to make a bigger window, to reinforce it, changed our yard so that it would drain away from it. Anyway, it went through a That was very expensive. That will never happen again. So the second time my basement flooded, it, you know, of course, I was like, wait, but we fixed the problem. And it was a broken sprinkler pipe, right? So we thought everything was fine. It had broken and you know, what are you going to do? Now, in each time, it ha- I, we had to, you know, cut out drywall. We had to sump pump water out. We had to do a lot of work in order to clean it up. So when I went down this morning and was like, wait, what? I was relieved that it wasn't as bad, right? But I, as I was in stage four of, oh, this is going to take a long time to clean up, you know, do we get the wet dry vac? Do we do, what do we do? Where's the drain? How do we do this? And clean it up. I did find in a moment uh, <laughs> an opportunity for me to be grateful, not for the situation that I found myself in, but for my previous self, myself who wanted to be prepared for me to never experience this again and to sort of pay it forward. Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you are thanking your past self for a little bit of preparation that they took that is now a gift to your now present self? That's exactly what I was doing. So as I was sopping up water and looking for the source, um, it did dawn on me as I was taking out plastic tubs. Oh, I'm so glad I got plastic tubs and made sure everything was in plastic tubs and not any cardboard because it would have been ruined. And then I was looking at all of the the treasures that we have, like old photo albums and and journals and even you know, priceless things. And of course, I had put them up high on shelves. Nothing was touching the ground. And I did in that moment think, good for me. <laughs> Because I have learned this lesson twice and have had so many wonderful things ruined. 
and I didn't do it again. I gave myself a gift in the past that now I am super, super grateful for because nothing was ruined. And I knew what to do, not only because nothing was ruined, but also because of what we've been through. I got a great handyman on call. (laughs) And instead of being like, I don't know who to call and how to fix this, I had earned that and had a really great, reliable handyman to be able to call and say, here's the situation. I don't know where the source is. Can you help? And he was able to come over right away and help because I had established that relationship and had that phone number on hand. And I think when we go through really stressful times, there's this sense of, oh, God, what can I do? This is overwhelming. And sometimes there's this sense of, A little bit of preparation goes a long way, and I was grateful for that little bit of preparation. So I want to consult the Council of Moms about what they really do in preparing for a worst-case scenario. Sometimes we know what we're supposed to do or what we should be doing, but what does it look like in real life? So today we have Karina White. Hello. Natalie Madsen. Hi. And Suzanne Clark. Hello. This is not a fun topic for the Council of Moms preparing for the worst case scenario. And I used to joke for many years, and I still kind of believe this in my heart of hearts if I'm being honest, that my plan for the impending apocalypse, whether it's zombies or whatever it is, I mean, it could be a myriad of things, let's not, (laughs) let's, let's be real, is that I was just going to put on a show. You know, when civilization has broken down, my uh, superpower was just going to be to, like, get a band of of, of like-minded performers with a big wagon, maybe, you know, and whatever we've got. And then we would trade neighboring villages because, again, society's broken down. Yes. We are going to put on a show, like maybe an improv show, maybe, like, do Shakespeare, whatever it is. And, you know, and entrance into that performance is, like, you know, a box of Band-Aids, yes. a can of beans. A bag of flour. And if we are really good, you know, a six-pack of Diet Coke. <laughs> right? Like, so that— <laughs> I always Perfect. <laughs> that will be like gold. So point. Council of Moms, this is how I deal with worst case scenarios is I kind of make a joke about it, but I'm really serious also. Yeah. But it, I might not be as prepared. When you talk about worst case scenarios with your girlfriends, how do you talk about it? Well, I would say pretty honestly, because I feel like if you're with your people, your girlfriends— And you can talk about what's really going on when something really hits you between the eyes, something that wasn't expected. Because in my opinion, worst case scenario is usually something, whether you've planned or not planned, whatever you think you've done to prepare, the reason we think it's a worst case scenario is we're not prepared for it. It's something beyond our scope that we think is never going to happen to us most of the time. Yeah, we couldn't even imagine it. Right. We can't Mm -hmm. imagine that this is happening to me. This is something that wouldn't happen to me because I am prepared or I have thought about it or, you know, like you said, I'm a person who's just not even going to think about that. So of course it's never going to happen to me because I'm just going to not be in that space. That's not going to be my life. Well, sometimes that's just isn't how it works. And sometimes it just hits us. And that's the worst case scenarios. I think terminal illness, divorce, as in my case, you know, just came and there it was. And then you're forced to deal with it. And no amount of planning, praying, whatever is going to take it away. It might make it easier, and it might make it so you know what step you're going to take next, but it doesn't change it. The worst case scenario is right there in your lap. I mean, you've experienced that, Lisa. Yeah. You know, there it was. What are you going to do about it? You didn't want. You don't want it, but there it is. 
And when it comes at you really fast yeah. like that, like you don't, like in my case, it was my late husband's diagnosis with ALS, a terminal disease, no hope for yeah. treatment or cure. There you go. And there were a lot of ways that I learned to deal with it, but slowly and surely over like five years. So, but before that, if you would have asked me two weeks before, or would, if you would have asked me three months prior to that, when I Googled his symptoms and WebMD said, oh, it's this, I was like, no, there's no way it's right. ALS. That's super rare. And it's also, really he's, extreme. it's really extreme. So yeah. my mind, it was like, no, that can't happen to me. I believe that you mentioned that you can't prepare for it oftentimes, and I think that's true. But I think it's important to note that there are some things we can do to prepare, whether it's just daily exercise or money in the bank we're setting aside Mm -hmm. or spiritual strength, whatever it is, if we're prepping every day in our regular lives for things, like you're saying, we can't fix it. By all accounts, it's still going to be a great big pickle in our lives. But I think it does soften the blow a bit if you have uh, a well to draw on with friends, family, money, spiritual sense, whatever it is, I think it's important to prepare every day for the unknown if you can. Oh, I agree. I think too, like you mentioned, like having a well to draw from. I think especially after the last couple years of like the world is shutting down and everything's changing, everything's different. I feel like it's good for us to remember that we have this well, like our whole life, we've survived it so far. Like all these curveballs that we all get, we're still here. You know what I mean? So like even worst case scenario, it's going to be okay. I know this isn't the same as other worst case scenarios, but it made me think of my second, my daughter is, has just been, I love her so much. She was a really hard baby. And I just remember whenever we had to fly with her, it was in my mind at the time, that's like worst case scenario with this terrible baby. I have to be on a plane. This is going to be bad. And we had a flight once where she pooped everywhere. She screamed the whole four hours. It was terrible. But the whole time in my head, I could say, but this is going to pass. Like at some point, this flight will be done and we'll be okay. You know what I mean? So like (laughs) even through these terrible experiences we have in life, We'll survive it or it will end or, you know, they're like from past experience, we should feel a little bit confident about that. I like that because it's a metaphor, too, for life. Like, you know, you're just saying, okay, so this is teaches me that. And it's true in like your deepest, darkest moments, you know, intellectually. Okay. Right. This is, I'm not going to always feel this way forever. Yes. Nothing is is permanent, right? Right. Yeah. But still. And to build on that, I think to uh, being realistic about what you expect about the situation, you know mm. when you travel with your daughter, it was going to be a problem. Yeah. So we are going to be realistic about it. This is probably how it's going to go. And to be realistic about what you can expect from other people in situations, to know that mm. someone might not be able to swoop in and save the day, or maybe they can at least be patient or endure it well with you. You know, I think having good expectations of yourself and others realistically uh, is also a big help. That's such an important point because when I think about worst case scenarios, I think a lot, a lot of things, right? Like job loss, poverty, right? Um, solo parenting, um, death, disaster, fires, earthquakes, natural disaster. I mean, like you think of all of the worst things possible and imaginable, and in none of those situations do you experience it just by yourself, right? It affects the people you love and the people around you. And I hadn't really thought of it in that way until you said that, Suzanne. Uh, I, I wonder then, 
knowing what you know from all of your individual wealths of ex- experience, how have other people and your relationships with other people helped you face worst case scenarios? Well, I think that one of the first things I do when I hit a worst case scenario is I, first of all, I've learned to pause. I think practicing the pause is huge. Sometimes we feel like, oh, I have to hurry up and do something or fix it. Oh, yeah. And that doesn't usually work out. I mean, of course, if you're in a fire, yes, get out of the house. Yeah, yes, sure, you, have to, sure. you have to do it right that minute. Stop but when we're talking roll. about, you know, life big scenarios that happen to a lot of us, I think pausing and then looking around you at who are your people? What resources do you have? You are still here and you have gone through other things and you are going to get through this, but how are you going to do that? So looking around at your resources— when I um, experienced a complete life shift, one of the first things I did was realize that I was surrounded by so many great people, a lot of them women, who had so many resources that they could offer me. This one could say, hey, I've got some legal expertise. Do you need some help with this? I know who to hook you up with. This one could say, hey, I recently went to a really great therapist. You know, what What do you need? Uh, just various things. Very and, specific. Right. Mm-hmm. But some not so specific. Some could just say, hey, I can just take you to lunch and let's just talk this through because I'm an out loud processor. And so it's good for me. I can come up to a lot of solutions just by hearing myself talk it through with somebody else that I value and trust. Suzanne was mentioning this, just having people around you and drawing from that well and knowing that, okay, I just have to remind myself that today is not the last day in this scenario. I can do it, but I don't have to do it all right now. Just pausing and realizing that I can take a breath. Well, in a worst case scenario, everything seems so immediate, right? It does. And it's it's that rush and that uh, fear and, yeah, being able to take a pause. Good Mm -hmm. advice. You both mentioned not having to do it alone, but I think it's important to recognize also not having to do it all at the same time. I always tell people who are having a baby and feeling so anxious about it, this is just going to happen one day at a time. It's, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's, it's totally. not going to happen overnight. Your nights are going to be really long. You know, Often disasters that come or hard times or trials, it's not going to be just this day that you have to deal with it all at once. You're going to have time to deal with it and you're going to have time to reach out to resources. And so I think it's important to uh, acknowledge you're going to have some time. Having had time then to sort of think about your life and things that you've been through and hard times and hopefully on the other end of it, especially right now. (laughs) If someone came to you today, a really good friend, and they were going through a crisis, looking back, what elements of your story of getting through really bad situations would you want to highlight to that friend? Be kind to yourself. Let yourself feel it. All the feelings. If you feel like crying, cry. If you feel like Taking to your bed, you know, and having a Jane Austen moment, do it. (laughs) Because sometimes we need to do that. If you feel like venting, you know who your people are, who you can vent to, who are going to validate you. Because I think there's a lot of good strength that you can come from feeling validated by the people that are in your life that love you. Um, And then, like I was just saying, be patient with yourself. Be patient with yourself. Don't feel like you have to solve it all right now. Because you don't. And let yourself feel whatever it is you're feeling and don't judge yourself for it. And another piece of advice that I was given 
Don't compare yourself and don't worry about what other people are thinking. That's probably my best piece of advice right there. Don't Mm -hmm. sit in judgment of yourself and don't worry about what other people are judging you. I had a friend who said to me when things were really hard and it was actually being talked about all over town, the things that were going on in my life, they really were. It was a very public situation. And she said, just trust that if people are talking about it, they're talking about out of love and care and compassion for you and your family. And if they're not, that's shame on them, not shame on you. Because that doesn't speak to who you are. The people who know you already know who you are. Mm-hmm. It only speaks to who they are if that's what they're doing. And I didn't find that to be true. I found that people were coming with compassion and love and kindness mm-hmm. for the most part. Did you find it easy to give people the benefit of the doubt? Um I tried really hard to do that, and I think that I did. I did have a couple people say very insensitive things, and one which was particularly terrible was a moment in the grocery store, and a woman walked up to me, and she said something really, really judgmental and horrible about my situation, about my former husband, and— I just kind of looked at her and said, I actually would prefer not to talk about that, especially not in the grocery store. And she wasn't a close, close friend. She was more of an acquaintance. And I walked away and she actually sought me out in the parking lot about Mm. 45 minutes later. She found me when I was getting in my car and apologized. Oh, wow. Fast forward five years later, my phone rings at work, unknown number, and it was her calling to ask me advice. She was actually going through something fairly similar, less public. And very tearfully asking me what I could do and what was my advice and where should she go and how should she handle things. Mm -hmm. And when I hung up the phone, I said to myself, okay, she didn't feel judgment from me in the moment when she didn't show up as her best self. And then when her life was imploding, she felt like she could reach out to me. And it did feel like a good moment. It felt like a good moment, like, okay, then maybe I was doing better at not passing judgment than I thought I was when people didn't show up as their best self. Because I did try to tell myself all the time when something hard would happen and someone would say something that maybe hit wrong or was insensitive, mm-hmm. or maybe even, you know, judgmental, I would say, they don't know, they they haven't right. gone through this, this is really hard, they're just trying their best to connect, and they're just, they're just not connecting yeah. in a way that's yeah. feeling they don't good know how to, to me. Joke. Right. They don't know how to be funny, no. it didn't land right, or right. whatever is and it was, like, And I just, yeah. I did try to say to myself that it wasn't intentional, right? but it's not easy. It's no. not easy when you're in the hard thing, and you're already feeling so fragile. I do think that's a much easier way to move through hard situations is just to assume everyone's trying their best. Mm -hmm. And my therapist always makes me repeat the mantra, it's none of my business what people think of me. It's none of my business. It's all them. Like with that girl at the grocery store, clearly that was her. She was probably having Mm -hmm. a hard time in her marriage as well. Right. Right. It wasn't about you at all. Right. It's just not about us all the time. Right now. <laughs> it's it's easy to let the world revolve well, around you. Well, because it's easy to take go-to. things so deeply personally. Right. Yeah. But it's a difficult way to travel through life. Back to your question, though, of like advice I would give to a friend going through a crisis. I think the worst trick that the devil plays on us is that we're alone. Even if the specifics are different— We've all felt heartache. We've all felt disappointment. Mm-hmm. We've all felt nervous about a situation or anxious about something unknown. We've all felt it in different ways. And I think I tend to be, I'm one of those, like, I'll just deal with it myself and I'm going to solve the problem and I'm going to do what I need to do. And I'm, I have a checklist and it's fine. No one needs to, I don't want to burden anyone. I'm like a super Enneagram too, which is the helper. <laughs> like, it is my worst nightmare to ask for help. But I love giving help to other people. It's what gives me self-esteem. And it's so good to know that about myself. But that's not healthy. That's not how you should right. live your life. I should be accepting of help from other people too. It helps us connect. And that 
isolation can really take over mentally. So don't let it. Don't let yourself feel like you're alone because you're truly not. Even if the specifics feel so different, at the end of the day, we're all moving through this human experience and we all can really connect in ways that might be unexpected to you. I like that. I was going to add to the fact, was it C.S. Lewis that said, oh, you too? I thought I was the only one. Mm -hmm. That famous quote of Mm -hmm. that, as you mentioned, we've all felt all the feels and we've all gone through so much life experience. And what better way than to share a burden with a friend or a family or someone that can help and help you move forward in your life and find hope and you know, a reason to carry on. So absolutely, you're never alone. That connection is so vital. You know, after I lost my husband, I never felt so alone in my mm-hmm. whole life. And it was in the middle of a global pandemic and I couldn't even have a funeral. I had to be careful about who, what people I could see. I couldn't hug my friends yeah. and family. It was so bizarre. And I found great comfort in reading books about grief and actually C.S. Lewis's book about, you know, his loss. And I just wanted to underline every word and every sentence. That's how I feel, you know? And I realized with the extraordinary measures that people took to make a contact with me, to drop off something, to call me, just because it, it was so much more difficult during that time for them to make a contact and have other people sit and share their stories of heartbreak and grief and loneliness. For me to realize, yeah, this is a common feeling, even though it seems like the most personal thing. And I think, too, in a worst case scenario, that is what we fear more than anything, right? Like, Mm. if you think of any worst case scenario that you could imagine, the real root of that fear of whatever happens is, I'm alone. I'm all by myself. In Uh any of those situations, I'm going to be left all alone. And so the antidote for that that is connection, Yeah. right? And is reaching out when you don't feel like reaching out. Yeah, which is which is like always another thing. <laughs> so, my question to you too is again from this idea of these things that we're afraid of and we talk about these things and then it happens to us and then everything changes, right? Then right. then it's like all the good rules and advice that we want to follow goes out the window and then you're like, "Yeah, but for me, I don't like help." I mean, I know I should accept help, yeah. you know. And it's it's hard. <laughs> but it's hard. So, moving forward from that place, how have you manage to not be bitter. One of the reasons why I have assembled this council of moms here today <laughs> is because you three are have been through real difficult times and you're some of the most hopeful, positive, but genuinely people that I know. And I have found a lot of strength personally from your examples. And I just want to know, what it, what is that then? Because I can't look at you and go, well, she doesn't know because she hasn't been through it. Like, I, you, I can't say that. So how do you move forward and maintain a hopeful disposition about life, knowing and experiencing that horrible things can happen? For me, personally, I feel like it's taken a lot of growth and maturity. I regret to inform that I don't know if I was capable of it in my young younger years when uh, my husband and I and our young family experienced very trying times. I think it's being on the other end of it and the growth that came from it that now I cannot be bitter. But I would hope that what we've expressed here today that younger people and maybe I can lead by example, is is that you would open up about it and be willing to share it so that others can help and lift. Because, uh, again, you don't need to do it alone, and there's just so much that can come from. So my advice is to not carry it alone, 
to find others who can give you hope and lift you up. Also, just quickly, I've been doing a little research on hope and have found that acknowledging that goals aren't always a straight line and A to B, it might be one step forward and two steps back, but having a goal actually scientifically increases hope in your life if you're looking mm-hmm. forward to something and working towards something. So I think having a goal for the future is something that can help. That's why I always want to have a Disneyland trip locked and loaded. Something to look forward to. Yep. Yeah. It's, it honestly makes me a happier person. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say that. Something to look forward to is critical, even if it's something small. Even if it's just lunch with a friend mm-hmm. that's trusted that you can be vulnerable with, mm-hmm. that's enough. And big things like Disneyland, <laughs> even better. For me, you know, trips to see my little grandson, it's, it's everything for me. If I know that's on the calendar, I just feel better. But I was just going to speak to what has been said about the way that I have held on to hope is just remembering that I have been through hard things before and other people around me have, I can always find somebody with a worse story, right? Isn't that what we all say? But it's true. And so so thinking outside of myself, for me, it all came down to service. There was literally times when I would like be in my shower, like crying, like I couldn't get a grip on myself, but I needed to go to work. I would say a prayer and I would say, I need somebody to serve and I need someone to serve in a big way. And I always always found something to do that, whether it was my own family, my own children, my own five kids, or somebody in my neighborhood, somebody at work, somebody somewhere. And just removing myself from my own situation, even if it was just for a half an hour, Mm. always helped me get back to a little bit better place, a little more hope, a little more positivity. Because just doing something kind for someone else, like you were saying, I'm a helper. Before everything changed in my life, you would be hard-pressed to find any time that I had ever let anybody help me with anything. Mm -hmm. Even when I had five kids in nine years, oh no, I can handle it. Could I have really used some help? Sure. And I wish, looking back on my younger self, I wish that I would have known that sooner. Because It blesses both people, right? Mm -hmm. I don't care what your faith paradigm is. Helping other people is just proven to make you feel better. It just does. And so when I look outside myself and go and find other people to serve, there's always somebody that's around me that I can do that for, something, somewhere, and letting people serve me. It's a mutual thing, just like you were saying. It really Um, works. I think um, the answer to the original question that I had in my head was— you find what you look for, you reap what you sow. If you're try if you genuinely want more hope in your life, you you find what you're looking for. I feel like it's really easily for me to mentally get into a place where, well, I can make a big long list of things I wish were different in my life. But I can also make a list of things that are great. And it might be shorter right now than that long list, but what if I try to focus more on that shorter list, right? You you genuinely find more of what you're looking for. I think a gratitude journal really helps me. I can always tell when I haven't written in it in a while it makes a difference those little daily habits to make sure you're really looking for what you want in your life When I was in the middle of my own worst case scenario, I suddenly had to answer a lot of very specific questions about living wills and trusts and estate and, and, and a lot of decisions that were really overwhelming at the time. And I wish I had known more and that I was a little bit better prepared. So I wanna know what we need to do to feel really prepared. 
So here to walk us through that, our friend, friend of the show, Larry Sprung from Midland Financial is here. I think it's an overwhelming feeling. I think that there's a list that we know, you know, as an adult, I need to make sure that I have a lot of paperwork in place. But sometimes we avoid it for a variety of reasons, right? Stress, uh, time management, or even just kind of an emotional avoidance of the whole situation. But today, I really want to be able to look at it. So when we're looking at the kind of of, of checklist that we need for our our peace of mind for not only ourselves, but our family in case of a worst case scenario, where do we even start? Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely certain things that you want to make sure that you have in place. And like you said, you know, there's a number of reasons why people don't address this. Uh, but I will tell you from personal experience, once you're done with it, mm-hmm. it makes you feel a lot better and at ease. It's so, true. You know, yeah, it does. It, it really does. And the first thing you want to do is kind of take a stock of what you own. You know, what do you have? What are your assets? You know, do you own a home, a vacation rental, vehicles, uh, accounts? You even want mm-hmm. to start taking into account certain technological things like Facebook accounts, believe it or not, there are ways to protect those and your digital assets and your digital footprint, you know, business interests, health savings accounts. So you want to make sure that you have a good handle on what you have. That's first and foremost Mm -hmm. and where it is. I think that this is a new thing, this sort of digital assets, you know, passwords and codes. And, you know, if you've got social media accounts and usually a lot of our banking and and other accounts are digital, um, what's the best way to gather all of that information? Yeah. So, I mean, usually you're going into these things, uh, most of them on a somewhat regular basis. So Mm -hmm. the first thing is make a list of what you know you have. And then as you go into certain uh, logons and banks, et cetera, you know, make sure that you had that on your list. And if not, add it to it. Uh, There are some good tools like um, LastPass or Dashlane or two password managers that are very good that you can essentially set up in such a way that if you can't access it or you're no longer living, that a loved one can. You could designate that while you're living and they would then have access to those passwords. Uh, So there are protections in place for those, but that's the best way to make sure you have everything you need. And just uh, as a side note, I'm a cautionary tale about that. There were a couple of passwords that we didn't quite get before my husband passed and... um, it's a big, long process in order to get it. We were able to, but it'll save you a lot of time and stress just to have that. Absolutely. It's one of those things that you don't really think about. I Mm-mm. think it's being thought about more and more these days, yeah. but it's still something that's not thought about often. And uh, it's something you should uh, definitely make sure you have uh, teed up just in case. Okay. So once we've taken stock of everything that we own, both digital and you know that we've acquired, what's next? Yeah. So, I mean, you want to take a look at what your options are. There are you know certain documents and certain ways to transition these assets from you to whomever you want them to go to, right? Mm-hmm. So there, one is you can have simply a beneficiary attached to it. Your retirement accounts, you could have a beneficiary attached to it. Um, and that will allow that asset upon your demise to go directly to that uh, beneficiary. If you don't have a beneficiary attached, then you have to rely on a will. 
you know, you want to make sure that you have one available. And every state seems to work a little bit differently. So here in New York, if you don't have a will, New York State has a will for you. They basically dictate that if you don't have a will, uh, how your assets are going to be distributed. Oh, really? Um, and, oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a specific mechanism of uh, an hierarchy of order of how those assets would be distributed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in our case, if you don't have a will, technically you have one already for you, but, you know, it, you put it yourself in a much better position if you outline where you want your assets to go rather than rely on New York State to tell you where they must go. Right. Um, and, and then another avenue that can be used is what's called a living trust. Um, you know, a little bit uh, of a misnomer with regard to a living trust is people think that that helps them avoid potentially taxes. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. A living trust is simply a vessel that allows you to retitle assets in the name of the trust. And then the trust is a document that will describe how your assets are going to be handled upon your demise. So it gives you an opportunity to lay out a game plan and a path for those assets to be distributed. Um, So those are really, you know, the top documents that you would need to review uh, the will and the living trust and the beneficiary designations to make sure that your assets are distributed in a manner uh, akin to where you want them to go. And if you didn't know which one was right for you and you wanted to, do you need to hire a lawyer or do you talk to somebody else? Yeah. I mean, listen, I I would always recommend we're not, I'm not a lawyer. We're not Mm -hmm. lawyers, but it's always good when you're talking about these types of things to hire a lawyer. There are some good platforms out there that will walk you through this process in a do-it-yourself type manner. And I think some of your decision on whether to use a lawyer or a do-it-yourself type manner uh, somewhat depends on what Uh, is the size of your estate of all your assets. And when you take stock of what you own, how much is actually there and how complicated you think it is, Uh, the more assets, the more complicated, then I definitely think you start moving into that realm that you should definitely have legal counsel, at least to guide you on this, uh, because it's a decision that basically you're going to make uh, and guide and essentially have no control over to oversee it. So it's important to make sure that you set it up in the way that you want it. And as you mentioned before, every you know law changes from state to state. And I know that estate attorneys, that's one of the kinds of laws that actually change quite regularly. You don't just go to school and then, oh, now you've learned everything. But um, <laughs> that, that, that kind of uh, process is uh, dependent on where you live and what year it is. Definitely. And I, I would highly recommend uh, that if you're going to use an estate planning attorney or an attorney for this, that you don't use a generalist. You know, don't use the person that did your home closing, that does business transactions mm-hmm. for you. This is a very specialized area of law. And as you mentioned, it's consistently changing. Um, and is, uh, you know, state by state dependent also. So I would highly recommend that you get somebody with an expertise and a specialty in estate planning and is licensed to practice in the state that you're located. So you're getting the best advice you possibly can. 
Okay, so I think a lot of people feel nervous about walking into this situation. Nobody wants to be taken advantage of or become overwhelmed. So as we're going through this checklist, um, what is the next item that we really should consider or at least have a working knowledge of before going in? Yeah, so you want to make sure, when I mentioned beneficiaries earlier, you want Mm -hmm. to make sure that you choose them wisely and you're choosing people that uh, you want to receive your assets. Also in, you know, certain areas, um, certain states, if the beneficiaries are not of legal age, you know, typically 18, there may need to be some kind of conservatorship, then you may have to keep that in mind in terms of how you set up monies to go to uh, beneficiaries that are not of age. But in addition to those uh, other documents we mentioned, will and living trust, there, there are a couple of key decisions or, or decision makers that you want to have paperwork for. And that is you want to make sure you have a power of attorney, Mm -hmm. uh, somebody basically who can step in your shoes while you're living. So this is not necessarily something upon death, but if you become incapacitated and can't make decisions or financial decisions on your own, this power of attorney would be somebody that would be able to step in your shoes and handle those transactions for you while you're living. When you pass, that power of attorney dies with you. Um, so that's an important document to have. Durable power of attorney for healthcare, somebody to make healthcare decisions for you while you're living again is important. Um, and then probably the other two uh, areas are, or individuals that you want to think about is having an executor, somebody who's going to handle your estate upon your demise. You know, when you're no longer here, that will settle the estate according to your will. And then if you're going to set up a living trust, as we discussed, you want to make sure you have somebody you can trust as the trustee. This could be similar to and the same person as your executor, but they're a person that handles the distribution of your assets according to your trust. So executor is tied into the will. Trustee is tied into the living trust. Um, And I would say in many cases, the power of attorney Uh that we mentioned earlier is such a vital document because, you know, you don't want to just, you know, talk about issues that could arise upon your demise. You also have to think about what happens if I can't handle my own circumstances. And that's where the power of attorney comes in very key. And so I'm, I'm curious, are we talking about situations that you'd need a, a power of attorney for, uh, like a, a sort of if you become mentally or physically incapacitated? Yes, both. I mean, you know, we've had instances where, you know, a client needs to inherently make a gift for planning purposes at the end of the year. And let's say their husband had a heart attack and is incapacitated Mm -hmm. from making that bank transaction, then the spouse can go into the bank with their power of attorney and handle that transaction as if they were the husband who was sitting in the hospital bed that wasn't able to do it. It just seems like, you know, we I, and I appreciate you being able to go through that list of power of attorney, durable power of attorney for health care, executor, if you have a will, and a trustee for living trust. And just even, I think, identifying these terms can make you a little bit more confident about what your individual situation is and what you're you're going to need. After you have identified that, what sort of like sense of, of, of relief, I think, have you mm-hmm. felt personally just by having all of this in place? 
Oh, I listen, for me personally, I felt a tremendous amount of relief. I did my first estate plan in my 20s for myself and my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've probably updated it three times uh, since then. And that's something I want to impress upon your listeners. Yeah. You know, uh, unfortunately, many people have anxiety over doing this because they think that they're making an irrevocable decision. Yeah. And it's a decision that they don't want to regret and potentially make a mistake on or with. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. This is, as long as you're alive and well, and if things change in your life, you can change these documents as your life's facts and circumstances change. And it probably will. So don't go, you know, don't go into this thinking that I'm making choices and decisions today to have this plan in order that I'm not going to be able to change if things were to change. So it's something that will change over your life. And like I said, I've probably updated my plan two or three times in the last 20 years or so. Yeah. And it, 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 we're, I think, even talking about just how kids get older, and so your family needs will change. And so even as your kids get older and they, you know, whether they're under 18 or over 18 makes a huge difference in how you want to, you know, plan things for the future and just where you are at, in life. And 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 I just want to sort of echo what you just said and and by just, re, you know, assuring people who are so, like, nervous about – doing that, there is a sense of like, whew, well, at least we took care of that. Like, you know, <laughs> if a yeah. worst case scenario happens, it, we're not going to make, you know, we don't have to make those decisions, you know, under the stress of that sort of situation. Um, and so yeah, I really and- appreciate your time and talking about paperwork that we need for these worst case scenarios. What what have we not talked about that you want people to consider? Yeah, I mean, I think the only other thing you have to think about is if you have kids, um, and this becomes one of the probably roadblocks to people completing their plan, Mm -hmm. there's two things with regard to kids, right? One is if you have young kids that are under, you know, the age of majority, you have to start thinking about who do you want to be the guardians or guardian of your children if, God forbid, something were to happen to both spouses. Mm -hmm. Not a pleasant thing to think about, but at the same time, again, like here in New York, there's a conservatorship process that if you don't name it, the state's going to basically help name that. So you're better off trying to figure that out. And that tends to be an area of friction between spouses because, you know, husband wants his brother, wife wants their sister, (laughs) you know, oh, I don't want your sister who did this, or (laughs) I don't want your brother who does that. And it becomes an area that becomes a roadblock. So you have to figure that out and work through that when they're young and, and just figure out a game plan that works at that time. And if you need to amend or adjust it, you can. And then the second thing is you want to think about your kids in terms of if something were to happen to both spouses, you know, in a worst case scenario, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when and how do you want your kids to receive your assets? You know, a lot of times they, you know, people will write up documents where, oh, I want them to get half 50, 50, and that may or may not be a fair arrangement, or I want them to get the money outright in their twenties. Mm-hmm. That may not be a, a right thing to do. They may not have the maturity to handle those assets. So there are ways to set it up so that the assets are protected and looked after for your kids until a certain age, um, and then they get distributed to them outright. Or it may make sense for those assets to be held in trust for them in perpetuity, because what that'll end up doing is help protect your children's assets in the future 
from what we call predators, creditors, and uh, spouses, perhaps. Um, so, you know, that's another avenue that has to be. And what do you mean by that? About. Let's talk a little bit more about that. What are those pitfalls? So, so what I mean by that is let's, uh, I'll use my own personal situation. So I have two boys, one's 18 and one's 15. Mm-hmm. So if God forbid something happened to myself and my wife, my kids would then inherit my wife's and my assets. So we've decided not to give my kids their assets outright. Basically, they will each have a trust set up for their benefit where they'll have a trustee that will manage it. And then at the age of, I think, 40 or 45, my boys will become co-trustees of their trusts. And what that means is because the trusts own that asset and there are co-trustees, if they're, you know, they're not considered their asset. So if a predator or they end up in a creditor problem mm-hmm. situation, that's not considered their asset for a creditor situation. And if they were, or when they get married, it's not really considered a marital asset either because it's not really quote unquote their asset, it's the trust asset. So there are ways to protect their, their assets for their future. And it's, it's something to think about. And again, you know, this may be getting more complicated than needed at this point for some of your listeners, but mm-hmm. just something to think about as they go through these various iterations of their estate plan. It may be something that comes up and they may want to consider at some point. And it's nice to know that you have options, you know, that there are a lot of different choices. And I think that can empower a lot of people to feel a little bit better about this entire process. Is there something that we haven't talked about that we need to think about um, as far as paperwork for a worst case scenario? No, I mean, I think the only other thing that you might want to do is outline your funeral arrangements if you have an idea of what that want, what you want that to look like. Um, you know, if you want to have some control over that, some people like having that feeling that they've controlled and had some decision-making process in that uh, decision. And other people, you know, have had those conversations with their spouses or significant others or children and, and understand that. But I I think the most important thing to impress upon people Mm -hmm. is take stock of what you own, get a plan together, understand that this is not an irrevocable decision. It's something that can and will change with you over time. And make sure you have those proper documents, not only if something happens to you upon your demise, but also if you're living and somebody needs to step in your shoes. Thank you so much, Larry. Thank you, Lisa. So I think we all like to think, yeah, we're ready. I mean, I've done my best. You can't really plan on everything. But I know I wasn't practically ready for a lot of the different pieces that had to fall into place for my worst case scenario. So how do you put into practice the things that you know you should do? What does it look like in real life? Well, I've invited my friend Ashley Garby-Smith to come in and talk about her experience. I got married pretty young. I got married when I was about 20 years old, and my husband was a helicopter pilot. And about a year and nine months into our marriage, he was doing a favor for a friend, and it was the middle of the night, and they were going to see a dying grandmother. And the weather wasn't good, um, and so he was a little bit nervous to go. But he went, and then the next morning, I get a knock on my door, and it's a police officer. And she says, do you know, his name was Wyatt, do you know Wyatt? And I said, yes. And she says, how do you know him? And I said, well, I'm his wife. 
and she hands me a post-it note. And on this post-it note, she says, this is the number for a sheriff in Georgia. I need you to call this number. And then she just left. So I was standing there with a post-it note. And so I call this so, he was such a nice man, so nice, and told me that there had been a helicopter accident and that there were no survivors. And I was 22 years old, and so I found myself as a 22-year-old widow. After Wyatt passed away, um, I decided that I probably should go to college. And while I was in college, that's when I, well, actually, while I was in college, I was also dealing with the aftermath of his death. And there were some things that happened with his family and friends and debt that we had that made me really interested in estate planning and life planning. And so I started becoming interested in the law, and that's when I decided I wanted to go to law school and then eventually help people with their own estate planning and life planning. You know, I was so young, and and it was never even something I had thought about. I mean, we had never said, hey, if you were to die, do you want to be buried? Do you want to be cremated? You know, what— if you want to be buried, what kind of casket do you want? You don't even think about that stuff as a 22-year-old. And on top of that, you know, I there was debt that we had that I didn't even know about. And so all of a sudden, some things come up. And not only are you dealing with the financial repercussions, also there are emotional repercussions that you're having to deal with because maybe you didn't know certain things that had popped up. And so... You know, as I've now moved forward to help other people with their worst case scenarios and planning for the worst case scenarios, there are so many things that I bring up that I don't think some other attorneys, because they haven't experienced it, will bring up that maybe aren't legal issues, but it's just like, hey, have you guys talked about, you know, what song you want sung at your funeral? If you want a funeral, if you want a funeral in a church or in a funeral home or somewhere else. So as I was navigating it, I kind of felt like I was on my own. And so a lot of it, I just learned by doing it. So at 22, it was May of 2004. So it was a a long time ago, but May of 2004, I had a random coworker approach me at work. And he said, this is really weird, but I just met with this life insurance agent. And I know that your husband flies helicopters. I know you guys are really young, but he was really great. Here's a card. And so I took the card And I went back to my husband, Wyatt, and I said, I know this is really weird. We're really young, but maybe we should just go talk to this life insurance agent. And so we set up an appointment, and a week later, we went and talked to him. And I'll be honest, it was a terrible life insurance plan. But we were young. We didn't know. And so we thought, okay, well, we'll do this. It was terrible. But we paid $50 in May to start this life insurance plan. My husband passed away in June of 2004, the following month. And again, it wasn't a great plan, but we had debt, again, some debt that I didn't even know about. And the life insurance plan at least covered that debt. And then it covered like his headstone. And and then it actually covered my first semester of college. So it wasn't a lot. But it was something. And so now I always talk to people because I just have seen so many situations where there is no no life insurance. And listen, GoFundMe did not exist. That wasn't a thing. So, you know, financially, I was essentially on my own with the help of, you know, some family members and friends. But the other thing that we often discuss is 
What song do you want sung at your funeral? What song do your parents want? You know, when you're talking to your parents, hey, who do you want speaking? What songs do you sing? Do you even want a funeral? I know so many people now that say, I don't want a funeral. I just want a celebration of life. Well, that's something you should know if it's somebody that you love and you're going, you know, you're actually going to be the person that's going to be implementing all those wishes. I think cremation is becoming a lot more popular now. And a lot of people don't know if their loved one wants to be buried or cremated. And and maybe some people don't care, but that's a burden that's on your shoulders as a survivor that you just want to have the answers to. If you want to be cremated, what do you want done with the ashes? Is there a special place that was special to you? I, I'm, in fact, my dad told me about a month ago that there are these services now where you can be cremated and then you actually plant a tree. And... And he was very clear about that. And I'm so glad. And to be completely honest, my dad and I, we don't openly communicate very well on a lot of things, but I'm so glad that he told me that. And he said, I don't want a funeral. I don't want, like, I don't want a funeral in the church. I don't want any song sung. I don't really need anybody speaking. And I would have not ever known that had he not told me. I think some people are really uncomfortable bringing up death because sometimes you think, well, if I start planning and I start talking about death, then that means I'm going to die. But we're all going to die. At some point, we all have to have the planning in place. We have to have those conversations. But, you know, I found also that stuff, you know, I, I look at my parents' stuff and I look at their house and I'm like, okay, I don't want anything. But also, you know, you'll have stuff that you don't think is important. But there was a shirt of Wyatt, this green Mountain Dew shirt. And it was just this old raggedy shirt that I would have never thought while he was alive, I would have wanted to keep. I did not know how much I would treasure that until after he died and I'm holding it. And so it's like, well, what do I give to his mom? What do I give to his friends? Because we had never talked about that. And this isn't necessarily legal advice, but for me, you know, I lost my husband very unexpectedly. I didn't have time to sit with him and say, I love you. I'm so grateful for my life that I had with you. You know, it has changed my second marriage a lot. It has changed the way that I treat my husband. It's changed our intimacy when you know that you can lose that. And it, it has changed that a lot. And, and it's changed my perspective of when my kids leave the house, we say, I love you. And we hug. And same with my husband. We don't get off the phone. So we don't, we have a rule where we don't hang up on each other because you just never know. So we don't hang up on each other. <laughs> you know, you could be mad. Okay, I love you. Bye. Well, at least I said it. <laughs> and keeping that realization that what we have, we could lose. And I know that <laughs> that's a very pessimistic way of looking at the world, but honestly, it has changed my relationships. And so I used to be a pretty emotionally closed off person. I've tried to be a lot more open and let people know, I love you. I'm so grateful for my relationship with you. And before anyone leaves, it's always an I love you. Thank you for being that person for me. And I know it's really cliche, oh, treat every day as if it were your last. But for me, it's like treat every moment as if it's the last moment that you might see this person. You just don't know when that's going to be. 
The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. This week, our show was produced by me, Lisa Valentine Clark, and Richie T. Stedman and McKay Menden, with help from Jocelyn Jensen and Alex Tumalip. If you want to continue the conversations we started today, join our group on Facebook called The Lisa Show Listener Community. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That would really help us out. Next week on this show... Gratitude becomes a lens by which you view your life. And it doesn't mean you don't see the sad parts of your life. It doesn't mean that you don't see the grief. It's okay to just allow those things to be there and and sit in those for a little while. But gratitude, it seems, can be something that you can focus on and say, you know, that is a good thing. That's next week on The Lisa Show. 